Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter Four, Sir Dinadan the Humorist. It seemed to me that this quaint lie was most simply and beautifully told. Uh, but then I had heard it only once, and that makes a difference. It was pleasant to the others when it was fresh, no doubt. Sir Dinadan the humorist was the first to awake, and he soon roused the rest with a practical joke of a sufficiently poor quality. He tied some metal mugs to a dog's tail and turned him loose, and he tore around and around the place in a frenzy of fright, with all the other dogs bellowing after him and battering and crashing against everything that came in their way, and making altogether a chaos of confusion and a most deafening din and turmoil, at which every man and woman of the multitude laughed till the tears flowed, and some fell out of their chairs and wallowed on the floor in ecstasy. It was just like so many children. Sir Dinadan was so proud of his exploit that he could not keep from telling over and over again, to weariness, how the immortal idea happened to occur to him, and, as is the way with humorists of his breed, he was still laughing at it after everybody else had got through. He was so set up that he concluded to make a speech—of course, a humorous speech. I think I never heard so many old, played-out jokes strung together in my life. He was worse than the minstrels, worse than the clown in the circus. It seemed peculiarly sad to sit here thirteen hundred years before I was born, and listen again to poor, flat, worm-eaten jokes that had given me the dry gripes when I was a boy thirteen hundred years afterwards. It about convinced me that there isn't any such thing as a new joke possible. Everybody laughed at these antiquities, but then they always do. I had noticed that centuries later. However, of course the scoffer didn't laugh—I mean, the boy. No, he scoffed. There wasn't anything he wouldn't scoff at. He said the most of Sir Dinadan's jokes were rotten, and the rest were petrified. I said petrified was good, as I believed myself that the only right way to classify the majestic ages of some of those jokes was by geologic periods. But that neat idea hit the boy in a blank place, for geology hadn't been invented yet. However, I made a note of the remark, and calculated to educate the Commonwealth up to it if I pulled through. It is no use to throw a good thing away, merely because the market isn't ripe yet. Now Sir Kay arose, and began to fire up on his history-mill with me for fuel. It was time for me to feel serious, and I did. Sir Kay told how he had encountered me in a far land of barbarians, who all wore the same ridiculous garb that I did, a garb that was a work of enchantment, and intended to make the wearer secure from hurt by human hands. However, he had nullified the force of the enchantment by prayer, and had killed my thirteen knights in a three-hours battle and taken me prisoner, sparing my life in order that so strange a curiosity as I was might be exhibited to the wonder and admiration of the king and the court. He spoke of me all the time, in the blandest way, as this prodigious giant, and this horrible sky-towering monster, and this tusked and taloned man-devouring ogre. 
and everybody took in all this bosh in the naivest way, and never smiled or seemed to notice that there was any discrepancy between these watered statistics and me. He said that in trying to escape from him I sprang into the top of a tree two hundred cubits high at a single bound, but he dislodged me with a stone the size of a cow, which all to brast the most of my bones, and then swore me to appear at Arthur's court for sentence. He ended by condemning me to die at noon on the twenty-first, and was so little concerned about it that he stopped to yawn before he named the date. I was in a dismal state by this time. Indeed, I was hardly enough in my right mind to keep the run of a dispute that sprung up as to how I had better be killed, the possibility of the killing being doubted by some because of the enchantment in my clothes. And yet it was nothing but an ordinary suit of fifteen-dollar slop-shots. Still, I was sane enough to notice this detail, to wit, many of the terms used in the most matter-of-fact way by this great assemblage of the first ladies and gentlemen in the land would have made a comanche blush indelicacy is too mild a term to convey the idea however i had read tom jones and roderick random and other books of that kind and knew that the highest and first ladies and gentlemen in England had remained little or no cleaner in their talk, and in the morals and conduct which such talk implies, clear up to a hundred years ago, in fact clear into our own nineteenth century, in which century, broadly speaking, the earliest samples of the real lady and real gentleman discoverable in English history, or in European history for that matter, may be said to have made their appearance. Suppose Sir Walter, instead of putting the conversations into the mouths of his characters, had allowed the characters to speak for themselves. We should have had talk from Rebecca and Ivanhoe and the soft lady Rowena, which would embarrass a tramp in our day. However, to the unconsciously indelicate all things are delicate. King Arthur's people were not aware that they were indecent, and I had presence of mind enough not to mention it. They were so troubled about my enchanted clothes that they were mightily relieved at last when old Merlin swept the difficulty away for them with a common-sense hint. He asked them why they were so dull. Why didn't it occur to them to strip me? In half a minute I was as naked as a pair of tongs and dear dear to think of it i was the only embarrassed person there everybody discussed me and did it as unconcernedly as if i had been a cabbage queen guinevere was as naively interested as the rest and said she had never seen anybody with legs just like mine before it was the only compliment i got if it was a compliment finally i was carried off in one direction and my perilous clothes in another I was shoved into a dark and narrow cell in a dungeon, with some scant remnants for dinner, some mouldy straw for a bed, and no end of rats for company. End of chapter 4 A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court Chapter 5 An Inspiration I was so tired that even my fears were not able to keep me awake long, when I next came to myself, I seemed to have been asleep a very long time. My first thought was, 
well what an astonishing dream i've had i reckon i've waked only just in time to keep from being hanged or drowned or burned or something i'll nap again till the whistle blows and then i'll go down to the arms factory and have it out with hercules but just then i heard the harsh music of rusty chains and bolts a light flashed in my eyes and that butterfly clarence stood before me i gasped with surprise my breath almost got away from me what i said are you here yet go along with the rest of the dream scatter but he only laughed in his light-hearted way and fell to making fun of my sorry plight all right i said resignedly let the dream go on i'm in no hurry prithee what dream what dream why the dream i am in arthur's court a person who never existed and that i am talking to you who are nothing but a work of the imagination oh la indeed and is it a dream that you are to be burned to-morrow <laughs> answer me that the shock that went through me was distressing i now began to reason that my situation was in the last degree serious dream or no dream for i knew by past experience of the lifelike intensity of dreams that to be burned to death even in a dream would be very far from being a jest and was a thing to be avoided by any means fair or foul that i could contrive so i said beseechingly ah clarence good boy only friend i've got for you are my friend aren't you don't fail me help me to devise some way of escaping from this place now do but hear thyself escape why man the corridors are in guard and keep of men-at-arms no doubt no doubt but how many clarence not many i hope full a score one may not hope to escape after a pause hesitatingly and there be other reasons and weightier other reasons what are they well they say oh but i daren't indeed daren't why poor lad what is the matter why do you blench why do you tremble so oh in sooth there is need i do want to tell you but come come be brave be a man speak out there's a good lad he hesitated pulled one way by desire the other way by fear then he stole to the door and peeped out listening and finally crept close to me and put his mouth to my ear and told me his fearful news in a whisper and with all the cowering apprehension of one who was venturing upon awful ground and speaking of things whose very mention might be freighted with death merlin in his malice has woven a spell about this dungeon and there bides not the man in these kingdoms that would be desperate enough to essay to cross its lines with you now god pity me i have told it ah be kind to me be merciful to a poor boy who means thee well for an thou betray me i am lost i laughed the only really refreshing laugh i had had for some time and shouted merlin has wrought a spell merlin forsooth that cheap old humbug that maundering old ass bosh pure bosh the silliest bosh in the world why it does seem to me that of all the childish idiotic chuckle-headed chicken-livered superstitions that e oh damn merlin but clarence had slumped to his knees before i had half finished and he was like to go out of his mind with fright oh beware these are awful words any moment these walls may crumble upon us if you say such things oh call them back before it is too late now this strange exhibition gave me a good idea and set me to thinking 
if everybody about here was so honestly and sincerely afraid of merlin's pretended magic as clarence was certainly a superior man like me ought to be shrewd enough to contrive some way to take advantage of such a state of things i went on thinking and worked out a plan then i said get up pull yourself together look me in the eye do you know why i laughed no but for our blessed lady's sake do it no more well i'll tell you why i laughed because i'm a magician myself thou the boy recoiled a step and caught his breath for the thing hit him rather sudden but the aspect which he took on was very very respectful i took quick note of that it indicated that a humbug didn't need to have a reputation in this asylum people stood ready to take him at his word without that i resumed i've known merlin seven hundred years and he seven hundred don't interrupt me he has died and come alive again thirteen times and travelled under a new name every time smith jones robinson jackson peters haskins merlin a new alias every time he turns up i knew him in egypt three hundred years ago i knew him in india five hundred years ago he is always blethering around in my way everywhere i go he makes me tired he don't amount to shucks as a magician knows some of the old common tricks but has never got beyond the rudiments and never will he is well enough for the provinces one night stands and that sort of thing you know but dear me he oughtn't to set up for an expert anyway not where there's a real artist now look here clarence i'm going to stand your friend right along and in return you must be mine i want you to do me a favor i want you to get word to the king that i am a magician myself and the supreme grand hyamuckamuck and head of the tribe at that and i want him to be made to understand that i am just quietly arranging a little calamity here that will make the fur fly in these realms if sir kay's project is carried out and any harm comes to me will you get that to the king for me the poor boy was in such a state that he could hardly answer me it was pitiful to see a creature so terrified so unnerved so demoralized but he promised everything and on my side he made me promise over and over again that i would remain his friend and never turn against him or cast any enchantments upon him then he worked his way out staying himself with his hand along the wall like a sick person presently this thought occurred to me how heedless i have been when the boy gets calm he will wonder why a great magician like me should have begged a boy like him to help me get out of this place he will put this and that together and will see that i am a humbug i worried over that heedless blunder for an hour and called myself a great many hard names meantime but finally it occurred to me all of a sudden that these animals didn't reason that they never put this and that together that all their talk showed that they didn't know a discrepancy when they saw it i was at rest then but as soon as one is at rest in this world off he goes on something else to worry about it occurred to me that i had made another blunder i had sent the boy off to alarm his betters with a threat i intending to invent a calamity at my leisure now the people who are the readiest and eagerest and willingest to swallow miracles are the very ones who are hungriest to see you perform them suppose i should be called on for a sample suppose i should be asked to name my calamity 
yes i had made a blunder i ought to have invented my calamity first what shall i do what can i say to gain a little time i was in trouble again in the deepest kind of trouble there's a footstep they're coming if i had only just a moment to think good i've got it i'm all right you see it was the eclipse it came into my mind in the nick of time how columbus or cortez or one of those people played an eclipse as a saving trump once on some savages and i saw my chance i could play it myself now and it wouldn't be any plagiarism either because i should get it in nearly a thousand years ahead of those parties clarence came in subdued distressed and said i hasted the message to our liege the king and straightway he had me to his presence he was frighted even to the marrow and was minded to give order for an instant enlargement and that you be clothed in fine raiment and lodged as befitted one so great but then came merlin and spoiled all for he persuaded the king that you are mad and know not whereof you speak and said your threat is but foolishness and idle vaporing they disputed long but in the end merlin scoffing said wherefore hath he not named his brave calamity verily it is because he cannot this thrust did in a most sudden sort close the king's mouth and he could offer not to turn the argument and so reluctant and full loath to do you the discourtesy he yet prayeth you to consider his perplexed case as noting how the matter stands and name the calamity if so be you have determined the nature of it and the time of its coming o oh, prithee delay not to delay at such a time were to double and treble the perils that already compass thee about o oh, be thou wise name the calamity i allowed silence to accumulate while i got my impressiveness together and then said how long have i been shut up in this hole ye were shut up when yesterday was well spent it is nine of the morning now no then i have slept well sure enough nine in the morning now and yet it is the very complexion of midnight to a shade this is the twentieth then the twentieth yes and uh, i am to be burned alive to-morrow the boy shuddered at what hour at high noon now then i will tell you what to say i paused and stood over that cowering lad a whole minute in awful silence then in a voice deep measured charged with doom i began and rose by dramatically graded stages to my colossal climax which i delivered in as sublime and noble a way as ever i did such a thing in my life go back and tell the king that at that hour i will smother the whole world in the dead blackness of midnight i will blot out the sun and he shall never shine again the fruits of the earth shall rot for lack of light and warmth and the peoples of the earth shall famish and die to the last man i had to carry the boy out myself he sunk into such a collapse i handed him over to the soldiers and went back end of chapter five a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court by mark twain chapter six the eclipse in the stillness and the darkness realization soon began to supplement knowledge the mere knowledge of a fact is pale uh, but when you come to realize your fact it takes on color it is all the difference between hearing of a man being stabbed to the heart and seeing it done 
in the stillness and the darkness the knowledge that i was in deadly danger took to itself deeper and deeper meaning all the time a something which was realization crept inch by inch through my veins and turned me cold but it is a blessed provision of nature that at times like these as soon as a man's mercury has got down to a certain point there comes a revulsion and he rallies hope springs up and cheerfulness along with it and he is in good shape to do something for himself if anything can be done when my rally came it came with a bound i said to myself that my eclipse would be sure to save me and make me the greatest man in the kingdom besides and straightway my mercury went up to the top of the tube and my solicitudes all vanished i was as happy a man as there was in the world i was even impatient for to-morrow to come i so wanted to gather in that great triumph and be the centre of all the nation's wonder and reverence besides in a business way it would be the making of me i knew that meantime there was one thing which had got pushed into the background of my mind that was the half conviction that when the nature of my proposed calamity should be reported to those superstitious people it would have such an effect that they would want to compromise so by and by when i heard footsteps coming that thought was recalled to me and i said to myself as sure as anything it's a compromise well if it is good all right i will accept but if it isn't i mean to stand my ground and play my hand for all it's worth the door opened and cemented arms appeared the leader said the stake is ready come the stake the strength went out of me and i almost fell down it is hard to get one's breath at such a time such lumps come into one's throat and such gaspings but as soon as i could speak i said but uh, this is a mistake uh, the execution is to-morrow order changed been set forward a-day haste thee i was lost there was no help for me i was dazed stupefied i had no command over myself i only wandered purposely about like one out of his mind so the soldiers took hold of me and pulled me along with them out of the cell and along the maze of underground corridors and finally into the fierce glare of daylight and the upper world as we stepped into the vast enclosed court of the castle i got a shock for the first thing i saw was the stake standing in the centre and near it the piled faggots and a monk on all four sides of the court the seated multitudes rose rank above rank forming sloping terraces that were rich with colour the king and the queen sat in their thrones the most conspicuous figures there of course to note all this occupied but a second the next second clarence had slipped from some place of concealment and was pouring news into my ear his eyes beaming with triumph and gladness he said tis through me the change was wrought and main hard have i worked to do it too but when i revealed to them the calamity in store and saw how mighty was the terror it did engender then saw i also that this was the time to strike wherefore i diligently pretended unto this and that and the other one that your power against the sun could not reach its full until the morrow and so if any would save the sun and the world you must be slain to-day while your enchantments are but in the weaving and lack potency odds bodikins it was but a dull lie a most indifferent invention but you should have seen them seize it and swallow it in the frenzy of their fright 
as it were salvation sent from heaven and all the while was i laughing in my sleeve the one moment to see them so cheaply deceived and glorifying god the next that he was content to let the meanest of his creatures be his instrument to the saving of thy life ah how happy has the matter sped you will not need to do the son a real hurt ah forget not that on your soul forget it not only make a little darkness only the littlest little darkness mind and cease with that it will be sufficient they will see that i spoke falsely being ignorant as they will fancy and with the falling of the first shadow of that darkness you shall see them go mad with fear and they will set you free and make you great go to thy triumph now but remember ah good friend i implore thee remember my supplication and do the blessed son no hurt for my sake thy true friend i choked out some words through my grief and misery as much as to say i would spare the son for which the lad's eyes paid me back with such deep and loving gratitude that i had not the heart to tell him his good-hearted foolishness had ruined me and sent me to my death as the soldiers assisted me across the court the stillness was so profound that if i had been blindfold i should have supposed i was in a solitude instead of walled in by four thousand people there was not a movement perceptible in those masses of humanity they were as rigid as stone images and as pale and dread sat upon every countenance this hush continued while i was being chained to the stake it still continued while the faggots were carefully and tediously piled about my ankles my knees my thighs my body then there was a pause and a deeper hush if possible and a man knelt down at my feet with a blazing torch the multitude strained forward gazing and parting slightly from their seats without knowing it the monk raised his hands above my head and his eyes toward the blue sky and began some words in latin in this attitude he droned on and on a little while and then stopped i waited two or three moments then looked up he was standing there petrified with a common impulse the multitude rose slowly up and stared into the sky i followed their eyes as sure as guns there was my eclipse beginning the life went boiling through my veins i was a new man the rim of black spread slowly into the sun's disk my heart beat higher and higher and still the assemblage and the priests stared into the sky motionless i knew that this gaze would be turned upon me next when it was i was ready i was in one of the most grand attitudes i ever struck with my arms stretched up pointing to the sun it was a noble effect you could see the shudder sweep the mass like a wave two shouts rang out one close upon the heels of the other apply the torch i forbid it the one was from merlin the other from the king merlin started from his place to apply the torch himself i judged i said stay where you are if any man moves even the king before i give him leave i will blast him with thunder i will consume him with lightnings the multitude sank meekly into their seats and i was just expecting they would merlin hesitated a moment or two and i was on pins and needles during that little while then he sat down and i took a good breath for i knew i was master of the situation now the king said 
be merciful fair sir and essay no further in this perilous matter lest disaster follow it was reported to us that your powers could not attain unto their full strength until the morrow but your majesty thinks the report may have been a lie it was a lie that made an immense effect up went appealing hands everywhere and the king was assailed with a storm of supplications that i might be bought off at any price and the calamity stayed the king was eager to comply he said name any terms reverend sir even to the halving of my kingdom but banish this calamity spare the sun my fortune was made i would have taken him up in a minute but i couldn't stop an eclipse the thing was out of the question so i asked time to consider the king said how long uh, how long good sir be merciful look it groweth darker moment by moment prithee how long not long half an hour uh, maybe an hour there were a thousand pathetic protests but i couldn't shorten up any for i couldn't remember how long a total eclipse lasts i was in a puzzled condition anyway and wanted to think something was wrong about that eclipse and the fact was very unsettling if this wasn't the one i was after how was i to tell whether this was the sixth century or nothing but a dream dear me if i could only prove it was the latter here was a glad new hope if the boy was right about the date and this was surely the twentieth it wasn't the sixth century i reached for the monk's sleeve in considerable excitement and asked him what day of the month it was hang him he said it was the twenty-first it made me turn cold to hear him i begged him not to make any mistake about it but he was sure he knew it was the twenty-first so that feather-headed boy had botched things again the time of the day was right for the eclipse i had seen that for myself in the beginning by the dial that was near by yes i was in king arthur's court and i might as well make the most out of it i could the darkness was steadily growing the people becoming more and more distressed i now said i have reflected sir king for a lesson i will let this darkness proceed and spread night in the world but whether i blot out the sun for good or restore it shall rest with you these are the terms to wit you shall remain king over all your dominions and receive all the glories and honors that belong to the kingship but you shall appoint me your perpetual minister and executive and give me for my services one per cent of such actual increase of revenue over and above its present amount as i may succeed in creating for the state if i can't live on that i shan't ask anybody to give me a lift is it satisfactory there was a prodigious roar of applause and out of the midst of it the king's voice rose saying away with his bonds and set him free and do him homage high and low rich and poor for he is become the king's right hand is clothed with power and authority and his seat is upon the highest step of the throne now sweep away this creeping night and bring the light and cheer again that all the world may bless thee but i said that a common man should be shamed before the world is nothing but it were dishonor to the king if any that saw his minister naked should not also see him delivered from his shame 
if i might ask that my clothes be brought again they are not meet the king broke in fetch raiment of another sort clothe him like a prince my idea worked i wanted to keep things as they were till the eclipse was total otherwise they would be trying again to get me to dismiss the darkness and of course i couldn't do it sending for the clothes gained some delay but not enough so i had to make another excuse i said it would be but natural if the king should change his mind and repent to some extent of what he had done under excitement therefore i would let the darkness grow a while and if at the end of a reasonable time the king had kept his mind the same the darkness should be dismissed neither the king nor anybody else was satisfied with that arrangement but i had to stick to my point it grew darker and darker and blacker and blacker while i struggled with those awkward sixth-century clothes it got to be pitch dark at last and the multitude groaned with horror to feel the cold uncanny night breezes fan through the place and see the stars come out and twinkle in the sky at last the eclipse was total and i was very glad of it but everybody else was in misery which was quite natural i said the king by his silence still stands to the terms then i lifted up my hands stood just so a moment and then i said with the most awful solemnity let the enchantment dissolve and pass harmless away there was no response for a moment in that deep darkness and that graveyard hush but when the silver rim of the sun pushed itself out a moment or two later the assemblage broke loose with a vast shout and came pouring down like a deluge to smother me with blessings and gratitude and clarence was not the last of the wash to be sure end of chapter six a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court by mark twain chapter seven merlin's tower inasmuch as i was now the second personage in the kingdom as far as political power and authority were concerned much was made of me my raiment was of silks and velvets and cloth of gold and by consequence was very showy also uncomfortable but habit would soon reconcile me to my clothes i was aware of that i was given the choicest suite of apartments in the castle after the king's they were aglow with loud-colored silken hangings but the stone floors had nothing but rushes on them for a carpet and they were misfit rushes at that being not all of one breed as for conveniences properly speaking there weren't any i mean little conveniences it is the, the little conveniences that make the real comfort of life the big oaken chairs graced with rude carvings were well enough but that was the stopping place there was no soap no matches no looking-glass except a metal one about as powerful as a pail of water and not a chromo i had been used to chromos for years and i saw now that without my suspecting it a passion for art had got worked into the fabric of my being and was become a part of me it made me homesick to look around over this proud and gaudy but heartless barrenness and remember that in our house in east hartford all unpretending as it was you couldn't go into a room but you would find an insurance chromo or at least a three-color god bless our home over the door and in the parlor we had nine 
but here even in my grand room of state there wasn't anything in the nature of a picture except a thing the size of a bed-quilt which was either woven or knitted it had darned places in it and nothing in it was the right color or the right shape and as for proportions even raphael himself couldn't have botched them more formidably after all his practice on those nightmares they call his celebrated hampton court cartoons raphael was a bird we had several of his chromos one was his miraculous draft of fishes where he puts in a miracle of his own puts three men into a canoe which wouldn't have held a dog without upsetting i always admired to study ours art it was so fresh and unconventional there wasn't even a bell or a speaking-tube in the castle i had a great many servants and those that were on duty lolled in the anteroom and when i wanted one of them i had to go and call for him there was no gas there were no candles a bronze dish half full of boarding-house butter with a blazing rag floating in it was the thing that produced what was regarded as light a lot of these hung along the walls and modified the dark just toned it down enough to make it dismal if you went out at night your servants carried torches there were no books pens paper or ink and no glass in the openings they believed to be windows it is a little thing glass is until it is absent then it becomes a big thing but perhaps the worst of all was that there wasn't any sugar coffee tea or tobacco i saw that i was just another robinson crusoe cast away on an uninhabited island with no society but some more or less tame animals and if i wanted to make life bearable i must do as he did invent contrive create reorganize things set brain and hand to work and keep them busy well that was in my line one thing troubled me along at first the immense interest which people took in me apparently the whole nation wanted a look at me it soon transpired that the eclipse had scared the british world almost to death that while it lasted the whole country from one end to the other was in a pitiable state of panic and the churches hermitages and monkeries overflowed with praying and weeping poor creatures who thought the end of the world was come then had followed the news that the producer of this awful event was a stranger a mighty magician at arthur's court that he could have blown out the sun like a candle and was just going to do it when his mercy was purchased and he then dissolved his enchantments and was now recognized and honored as the man who had by his unaided might saved the globe from destruction and its peoples from extinction now if you consider that everybody believed that and not only believed it but never even dreamed of doubting it you will easily understand that there was not a person in all britain that would not have walked fifty miles to get a sight of me of course i was all the talk all other subjects were dropped even the king became suddenly a person of minor interest and notoriety within twenty-four hours the delegations began to arrive and from that time onward for a fortnight they kept coming the village was crowded and all the countryside i had to go out a dozen times a day and show myself to these reverent and awe-stricken multitudes it came to be a great burden as to time and trouble 
but of course it was at the same time compensatingly agreeable to be so celebrated and such a centre of homage it turned brer merlin green with envy and spite which was a great satisfaction to me but there was one thing i couldn't understand nobody had asked for an autograph i spoke to clarence about it by george i had to explain to him what it was then he said nobody in the country could read or write but a few dozen priests land think of that there was another thing that troubled me a little those multitudes presently began to agitate for another miracle that was natural to be able to carry back to their far homes the boast that they had seen the man who could command the sun riding in the heavens and be obeyed would make them great in the eyes of their neighbors and envied by them all but to be able to also say they had seen him work a miracle themselves why people would come a distance to see them the pressure got to be pretty strong there was going to be an eclipse of the moon and i knew the date and hour but it was too far away two years i would have given a good deal for license to hurry it up and use it now when there was a big market for it it seemed a great pity to have it wasted so and come lagging along at a time when a body wouldn't have any use for it like it is not if it had been booked for only a month away i could have sold it short but as matters stood i couldn't seem to cipher out any way to make it do me any good so i gave up trying next clarence found that old merlin was making himself busy on the sly among those people he was spreading a report that i was a humbug and that the reason i didn't accommodate the people with a miracle was because i couldn't i saw that i must do something i presently thought out a plan by my authority as executive i threw merlin into prison the same cell i had occupied myself then i gave public notice by herald and trumpet that i should be busy with affairs of state for a fortnight but about the end of that time i would take a moment's leisure and blow up merlin's stone tower by fires from heaven in the meantime whoso listened to evil reports about me let him beware furthermore i would perform but this one miracle at this time and no more if it failed to satisfy and any murmured i would turn the murmurers into horses and make them useful quiet ensued i took clarence into my confidence to a certain degree and we went to work privately i told him that this was a sort of miracle that required a trifle of preparation and that it would be sudden death to ever talk about these preparations to anybody that made his mouth safe enough clandestinely we made a few bushels of first-rate blasting powder and i superintended my armorers while they constructed a lightning rod and some wires this old stone tower was very massive and rather ruinous too for it was roman and four hundred years old yes and handsome after a rude fashion and clothed with ivy from base to summit as with a shirt of scale mail it stood on a lonely eminence in a good view from the castle and about half a mile away working by night we stowed the powder in the tower dug stones out on the inside and buried the powder in the walls themselves which were fifteen feet thick at the base we put in a peck at a time in a dozen places <laughs> we could have blown up the tower of london with these charges when the thirteenth night was come we put up our lightning-rod bedded it in one of the batches of powder and ran wires from it to the other batches 
everybody had shunned that locality from the day of my proclamation but on the morning of the fourteenth i thought best to warn the people through the heralds to keep clear away a quarter of a mile away then added by command that at some time during the twenty-four hours i would consummate the miracle and would first give a brief notice by flags on the castle towers if in the daytime by torch-baskets in the same places if at night thunder-showers had been tolerably frequent of late and i was not much afraid of a failure still i shouldn't have cared for a delay of a day or two i should have explained that i was busy with affairs of state yet and the people must wait of course we had a blazing sunny day almost the first one without a cloud for three weeks things always happened so i kept secluded and watched the weather Clarence dropped in from time to time and said the public excitement was growing and growing all the time, and the whole country filling up with human masses as far as one could see from the battlements. At last the wind sprang up and a cloud appeared, in the right quarter, too, and just at nightfall. For a little while I watched that distant cloud spread and blacken. Then I judged it was time for me to appear. I ordered the torch-baskets to be lit, and Merlin liberated and sent to me a quarter of an hour later i ascended the parapet and there found the king and the court assembled and gazing off in the darkness toward merlin's tower already the darkness was so heavy that one could not see far these people and the old turrets being partly in deep shadow and partly in the red glow from the great torch-baskets overhead made a good deal of a picture merlin arrived in a gloomy mood i said you wanted to burn me alive when i had not done you any harm and latterly you have been trying to injure my professional reputation therefore i am going to call down fire and blow up your tower but it is only fair to give you a chance now if you think you can break my enchantments and ward off the fires step to the bat it's your innings i can fair sir and i will doubt it not he drew an imaginary circle on the stones of the roof and burnt a pinch of powder in it which sent up a small cloud of aromatic smoke whereat everybody fell back and began to cross themselves and get uncomfortable then he began to mutter and make passes in the air with his hands he worked himself up slowly and gradually into a sort of frenzy and got to thrashing around with his arms like the sails of a windmill. By this time the storm had about reached us, the gusts of wind were flaring the torches and making the shadows swash about, the first heavy drops of rain were falling, the world abroad was black as pitch, the lightning began to wink fitfully. Of course, my rod would be loading itself now, in fact, things were imminent, so I said, you have had time enough i have given you every advantage and not interfered it is plain your magic is weak it is only fair that i begin now i made about three passes in the air and then there was an awful crash and that old tower leapt into the sky in chunks along with a vast volcanic fountain of fire that turned night to noonday and showed a thousand acres of human beings groveling on the ground in a general collapse of consternation. Well, it rained mortar and masonry the rest of the week. This was the report, but probably the facts would have modified it. It was an effective miracle. The great bothersome temporary population vanished. 
there were a good many thousand tracks in the mud the next morning but they were all outward bound if i had advertised another miracle i couldn't have raised an audience with a sheriff merlin's stock was flat the king wanted to stop his wages he even wanted to banish him but i interfered i said he would be useful to work the weather and attend to small matters like that and i would give him a lift now and then when his poor little parlor magic soured on him there wasn't a rag of his tower left but i had the government rebuild it for him and advised him to take boarders but he was too high-toned for that and as for being grateful he never even said thank you he was a rather hard lot take him how you might but then you couldn't fairly expect a man to be sweet that had been set back so End of chapter 7 A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 8, The Boss To be vested with enormous authority is a fine thing, but to have the onlooking world consent to it is a finer. The Tower episode solidified my power and made it impregnable if any were perchance disposed to be jealous and critical before that they experienced a change of heart now there was not any one in the kingdom who would have considered it good judgment to meddle with my matters i was fast getting adjusted to my situation and circumstances for a time i used to wake up mornings and smile at my dream and listen for the colt's factory whistle but that sort of thing played itself out gradually, and at last I was fully able to realize that I was actually living in the sixth century and in Arthur's court, not a lunatic asylum. After that I was just as much at home in that century as I could have been in any other, and as for preference, I wouldn't have traded it for the twentieth. Look at the opportunities here for a man of knowledge, brains, pluck and enterprise to sail in and grow up in the country the grandest field that ever was and all my own not a competitor not a man who wasn't a baby to me in acquirements and capacities whereas what would i amount to in the twentieth century i should be a foreman of a factory that is about all and could drag a seine down street any day and catch a hundred better men than myself what a jump i had made I couldn't keep from thinking about it, and contemplating it, just as one does who has struck oil. There was nothing back of me that could approach it, unless it might be Joseph's case, and Joseph's only approached it, and it didn't equal it quite. For it stands to reason that as Joseph's splendid financial ingenuities advantaged nobody but the king, the general public must have regarded him with a good deal of disfavor, whereas I had done my entire public a kindness in sparing the sun, and was popular by reason of it. I was no shadow of a king. I was the substance. The king himself was the shadow. My power was colossal, and it was not a mere name, as such things have generally been. It was the genuine article." I stood here at the very spring and source of the second great period of the world's history, and could see the trickling stream of that history gather and deepen and broaden and roll its mighty tides down the far centuries, 
and I could note the upspringing of adventures like myself in the shelter of its long array of thrones, de Montforts, Gavinstons, Mortimers, Villierses, the war-making, campaign-directing wantons of France, and Charles the Second's scepter-wielding drabs, but nowhere in the procession was my full-sized fellow visible. I was a unique and glad to know that that fact could not be dislodged or challenged for thirteen centuries and a half, for sure. Yes, in power I was equal to the king. At the same time there was another power that was a trifle stronger than both of us put together. That was the church. I do not wish to disguise that fact. I couldn't if I wanted to. But never mind about that now. It will show up in its proper place later on. It didn't cause me any trouble in the beginning, at least any of consequence. Well, it was a curious country, and full of interest. And the people! They were the quaintest and simplest and trustingest race. Why, they were nothing but rabbits! It was pitiful for a person born in a wholesome, free atmosphere to listen to their humble and hearty outpourings of loyalty toward their king and church and nobility as if they had any more occasion to love and honor king and church and noble than a slave has to love and honor the lash, or a dog has to love and honor the stranger that kicks him. Why, dear me, any kind of royalty, howsoever modified, any kind of aristocracy, howsoever pruned, is rightly an insult. But if you are born and brought up under that sort of arrangement, you probably never find it out for yourself and don't believe it when somebody else tells you. It is enough to make a body ashamed of his race to think of the sort of froth that has always occupied its thrones without shadow of right or reason, and the seventh-rate people that have always figured as its aristocracies, a company of monarchs and nobles who, as a rule, would have achieved only poverty and obscurity if left, like their betters, to their own exertions. The most of King Arthur's British nation were slaves, pure and simple, and bore that name, and wore the iron collar on their necks, and the rest were slaves in fact, but without the same. They imagined themselves men and free men, and called themselves so. The truth was, the nation as a body was in the world for one object and one only, to grovel before king and church and noble, to slave for them, sweat blood for them starve that they might be fed, work that they might play, drink misery to the dregs that they might be happy, go naked that they might wear silks and jewels, pay taxes that they might be spared from paying them, and be familiar all their lives with the degrading language and postures of adulation that they might walk in pride and think themselves the gods of this world and for all this the thanks they got were cuffs and contempt, and so poor-spirited were they that they took even this sort of attention as an honor. Inherited ideas are a curious thing, and interesting to observe and examine. I had mine, the king and his people had theirs. In both cases they flowed in ruts worn deep by time and habit, and a man who should have proposed to divert them by reason and argument would have had a long contract on his hands. For instance, those people had inherited the idea that all men without title and a long pedigree, whether they had great natural gifts and acquirements or hadn't, 
were creatures of no more consideration than so many animals bugs insects whereas i had inherited the idea that human daws who can consent to masquerade in the peacock shams of inherited dignities and unearned titles are of no good but to be laughed at the way i was looked upon was odd but it was natural you know how the keeper and the public regard the elephant in the menagerie well that is the idea they are full of admiration of his vast bulk and his prodigious strength they speak with pride of the fact that he can do a hundred marvels which are far and away beyond their own powers and they speak with the same pride of the fact that in his wrath he is able to drive a thousand men before him but does that make him one of them no the raggedest tramp in the pit would smile at the idea he couldn't comprehend it couldn't take it in couldn't in any remote way conceive of it well to the king the nobles and all the nation down to the very slaves and tramps i was just that kind of an elephant and nothing more i was admired also feared but it was as an animal is admired and feared the animal is not reverenced neither was i i was not even respected i had no pedigree no inherited title so in the king's and noble's eyes i was mere dirt the people regarded me with wonder and awe but there was no reverence mixed with it through the force of inherited ideas they were not able to conceive of anything being entitled to that except pedigree and lordship there you see the hand of that awful power the roman catholic church in two or three little centuries it had converted a nation of men to a nation of worms before the day of the church's supremacy in the world men were men and held their heads up and had a man's pride and spirit and independence and what of greatness and position a person got he got mainly by achievement not by birth but then the church came to the front with an axe to grind and she was wise and subtle and knew more than one way to skin a cat or a nation she invented divine right of kings and propped it all around brick by brick with the beatitudes wrenching them from their good purpose to make them fortify an evil one she preached to the commoner humility obedience to superiors the beauty of self-sacrifice she preached to the commoner meekness under insult preached still to the commoner always to the commoner patience meanness of spirit non-resistance under oppression and she introduced heritable ranks and aristocracies and taught all the christian populations of the earth to bow down to them and worship them even down to my birth century that poison was still in the blood of christendom and the best of english commoners was still content to see his inferiors impudently continuing to hold a number of positions such as lordships and the throne to which the grotesque laws of his country did not allow him to aspire in fact he was not merely contented with this strange condition of things he was even able to persuade himself that he was proud of it it seems to show that there isn't anything you can't stand if you are only born and bred to it of course that taint that reverence for rank and title had been in our american blood too i know that but when i left america it had disappeared at least to all intents and purposes the remnant of it was restricted to the dudes and dudesses 
when a disease has worked its way down to that level it may fairly be said to be out of the system but to return to my anomalous position in king arthur's kingdom here i was a giant among pygmies a man among children a master intelligence among intellectual moles by all rational measurement the one and only actual great man in that whole british world and yet there and then just as in the remote england of my birth-time the sheep-witted earl who could claim long descent from a king's layman acquired at second hand from the slums of london was a better man than i was such a personage was fawned upon in arthur's realm and reverently looked up to by everybody even though his dispositions were as mean as his intelligence and his morals as base as his lineage there were times when he could sit down in the king's presence but i couldn't i could have got a title easily enough and that would have raised me a large step in everybody's eyes even in the king's the giver of it but i didn't ask for it and i declined it when it was offered i couldn't have enjoyed such a thing with my notions and it wouldn't have been fair anyway because as far back as i could go our tribe had always been short of the bar sinister i couldn't have felt really and satisfactorily fine and proud and set up over any title except one that should come from the nation itself the only legitimate source and such an one i hoped to win and in the course of years of honest and honorable endeavor i did win it and did wear it with a high and clean pride this title fell casually from the lips of a blacksmith one day in a village was caught up as a happy thought and tossed from mouth to mouth with a laugh and an affirmative vote in ten days it had swept the kingdom and was become as familiar as the king's name i was never known by any other designation afterward whether in the nation's talk or in grave debate upon matters of state at the council board of the sovereign this title translated into modern speech would be the boss elected by the nation that suited me and it was a pretty high title there were very few thes and i was one of them if you spoke of the duke or the earl or the bishop how could anybody tell which one you meant but if you spoke of the king or the queen or the boss it was different well i liked the king and as king i respected him respected the office at least respected it as much as i was capable of respecting any unearned supremacy but as men i looked down upon him and his nobles privately and he and they liked me and respected my office but as an animal without birth or sham title they looked down upon me and were not particularly private about it either i didn't charge for my opinion about them and they didn't charge for their opinion about me the account was square the books balanced everybody was satisfied end of chapter eight